Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's segment of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy's Contours podcast series. Today, we will be talking about the complex and unfolding battle space in Ukraine as Russian forces advanced a full-scale offensive that has thrown the country's future, as well as Eastern European security, into uncertainty. My name is Caroline Rose, and I am joined here today by three expert minds on military and open source intelligence analysis, who have all been at the forefront of monitoring efforts of the battle space in Ukraine. First, we have Rob Lee, who is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. He's a PhD student researching Russian defense policy at King's College London's War Studies Department. He's a former Marine Infantry Officer, Alpha Fellow, and Visiting Fellow at the Center for Analysis of Strategies and Technologies, a Russian think tank focused on defense policy. You can follow Rob's detailed analysis on Russian military tactics on Twitter, at RALee85. Second, we have Sim Tak, a chief military analyst at Force Analysis, which provides data and analysis on armed conflicts and defense policy. His activities are centered around the intelligence-driven approaches to the study of armed conflicts and military capabilities, as well as other resources of power that support foreign policy behavior. Formerly, he served as the global analyst at the U.S.-based geopolitical intelligence firm Stratfor. You can follow Sim's detailed analysis on the evolving battle space in Ukraine and weekly maps on Twitter at SimTAC. Third, we have Aram Shabanian, an open source intelligence analyst at the New Lines Institute, who specializes in combining traditional means of research with modern technology-assisted tools to cover topics pertaining to America's war and terror and conflicts in the former Soviet Union. Aram has tracked developments over the past eight years as they trended towards an outbreak of general warfare between Russia and Ukraine. You can follow Aram's detailed monitoring efforts on a flight path, satellite imagery, and other open source intelligence on the conflict in Ukraine at Shabanian Aram. I'd like to start off by asking you all about today's announcement from the Russian defense minister about a notable change in tack and strategy. He stated that Russia's main goal was now to liberate Donbass as the main tasks of the first phase of war had been completed and Russian forces have significantly reduced the Ukrainian military's combat power. Also, the Russian deputy defense minister noted that Russian forces will turn its focus away from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev and Chernihiv. And I'm curious how you read this as a change in the Russian strategy. OSIN accounts on various platforms have been conducting analysis on visually confirmed equipment losses as well, taken by the Russian armed forces. What's been observed is amongst these losses that have been very high in equipment ranging from T-90 tanks to KA-52 attack helicopters. So I'm curious, does the Russian Federation have the means to replace lost equipment of this caliber? And if not, could that be a major factor to the shift in objectives from Kiev back to the Donbass for the continuation of this conflict? I thought before this war started that basically Russia was going to focus, it was going to be mostly focused on the Ukrainian military. So turning Ukrainian military, degrading Ukrainian military, and that would be used for a couple of reasons. One would obviously degrade Ukraine's ability to defend, but also it would be about inflicting pain, costs, and element of kind of compelling strategy, which is semi, I think, semi right, but mostly wrong. What Russia instead did, a lot of it was terrain focus. So they clearly wanted to, want to go to Kiev. They clearly wanted to circle Kiev. They clearly hope to try to get to Zelensky himself. I think that you know the, the initial operation at Hostomol Airport was I think they assumed light resistance 
this might be something you know, similar to the 2014 annexation of Crimea, where if they moved in fast enough, or Ukraine got so they could you could get situational awareness, they could get to Zelensky, get them to concede and impose their will that way. That failed. And after that, I think it clearly became they still wanted to encircle Kyiv. They had one offensive coming from the west side of the Dnieper River from Belarus, another from the east side from the Chernihiv region. But ultimately, they failed to encircle the city. And ever since the, the first day, there's been fighting in the Hostomol, Bucha, Irpin area, and Ukraine has held them back. Basically, that, that front line has been you know, relatively static for weeks. It appears Ukraine has had, had some successes recently, the last week. It, it's been clear for a while that Russia, when they invaded, they didn't have a huge force. And that attrition, which appears to be somewhat substantial, that meant that oh, their objectives had to be kind of pared back. And from the beginning, it, it seems as though Russia attempted to do too many things, and they didn't have the forces to achieve the ball. And so taking Kiev, right, huge city, it takes a lot of forces, and it would lead to a lot of attrition. They obviously were trying to go to Odessa. That failed as well, or Mikolaev. And then they, they had offensives in the Kharkiv, Sumy, Chernihiv regions. And you also had the operation of the JFO and, and Mariupol. All of those things Russia could not do at the same time, right? Because they're facing resistance in many places. And ultimately, I think what Deputy Minister uh, Famine announced today, I think it was basically acknowledgement, right? That basically Russia does not have the forces to encircle Kiev from either the west or eastern sides. They, they failed to do so. And at this point, carrying back the objectives, they can say, okay, you know, Mariupol, they'll probably take in the next week or two. They, they've been fighting there pretty heavily for the last few weeks. And then they can have some success in the J4 area by targeting Ukrainian forces there and try to encircle them. The issue is that they, just, they ultimately don't have a large enough force to do that. And so right now, I think we're seeing is they're paring back from their offenses on Mikolaev. That failed, so that they're pulled back from that. From Kiev, that failed as well. So I think they pulled a little bit back from that. And they're trying to like, move forces to, to take part in this kind of JFO operation to try and circle forces there to kind of come away with this war where having some success in, in degrading Ukrainian defense, you know, the military's capabilities. So I think that's what they're trying to do. I think the statement today is kind of acknowledgement of the situation that basically the, the front line in the kind of northwest area of Kiev has been pretty static for weeks now. And it's clear they didn't have the capacity to encircle. And then obviously in the eastern side of Kiev, you had that big fight in Bravari a few weeks ago, same kind of issue came up. So ultimately, I think it's acknowledgement that Russia was trying to do too many things. They didn't have the forces to do in the beginning. Attrition made that even worse. So now they have to kind of focus on one or two things. And going back to, to you know, I thought in the beginning they would focus on going at the Ukrainian military. Now it appears that they are trying to do that. Now I think that they're, they're coming away and saying, okay, this is what we can achieve with our forces. We can't take big cities that are that are going to be held block and block, except for Mariupol. And then basically they're going to try and prioritize one thing and try to come away with this conflict with some more minimal goals that they can actually achieve. I think that's actually a very fair point. The, the way that you're characterizing uh, today's announcement on the drastical reduction of offensive efforts in Kiev and Chernihiv. I, I think that's exactly what that is, the pairing back of their actual objectives. It's something that I think a lot of people had been expecting to come. It's it's almost the only thing that Russia could militarily still do short of the escalations to use of chemical or nuclear weapons. But if things aren't working, you have to limit your scope and, and actually concentrate your forces where they might be useful. And, and I think today we're seeing that. Russia is painting this as a progressive step in negotiations, trying to build trust in the negotiations that are going on in Istanbul. But I think, as Rob was saying, we've, we've seen over the past weeks that these fronts 
have completely stalled. They have very little to gain there at this point, probably a lot more to lose if they actually keep going at them. And and so, yeah, I think it makes sense that Russia will actually reduce their efforts there. The big question to me is still, what does that look like? Does that mean that they will actually withdraw their forces from these offensives? Or will they actually maintain a presence there and, and basically be satisfied with the position they hold without conducting further offensive action, which, of course, has been very costly to them. That's something to look out for us as things evolve. Now, in in terms of how they got to that situation, um, I'm I'm agreeing with a lot of the things that Rob said here. uh, But one of the things that jumped out to me in the beginning of this offensive related to the capacity that Russia has and the objectives that they seem to have put forward is that it, it seemed to me like Russia was trying to role play the Western style of warfare. It it seemed to me like they were trying to conduct the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. Perhaps Gerasimov watched a little too much Generation Kill and he was trying to, to copy exactly that. But we saw relatively small Russian forces trying to penetrate very deeply into Ukraine, such as the, the operation towards Mikolaev that, that Rob mentioned. That's exactly what happened there. We saw a very small force push very deeply. Of course, when the U.S. does that, they have a very significant intelligence and close air support overhead, which the Russians don't have in this case. And I, I assume the issue of Russian air power will come back to us at some point here. But but in essence, they tried to play a game that they weren't ready to play. And someone in the Kremlin or in Russia's military staff seems to have made a really big mistake in promising to deliver on certain objectives that they simply weren't capable of. And that's coming back to them now. And, and that's why a reconfiguration of those objectives is probably what they'll be trying to achieve now. Off of what Simtak had said in terms of the comparison to the Iraq war, I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. And and Rob, you were talking about the uh, attempts to encircle Kiev and how those have gone poorly. I think what we're seeing is an attempt to recreate the American thunder runs on Baghdad, right? We're seeing the Russians attempt to advance rapidly on key cities that they need and bypass those that they don't by securing the main supply routes. And that simply hasn't worked out for them. Because the Ukrainians, I think, recognized that game very early on and didn't meet the Russians on the open battlefield, met them in the cities and met them close to the cities where they could bloody them and send them staggering back. And that plays off of something I saw, especially from Rob's Twitter feed, was a lot of the the logistical buildup to this invasion didn't match what you would expect from an army of this size, right? If you look at the U.S. military, a large part of the U.S. military is dedicated to logistics. And then you factor in the contractors who do logistics on top of that. And it's a major portion of America's military spending is is on logistics alone, because it turns out it's very difficult to move tanks long distances. And while Ukraine isn't very far from Russia, it borders Russia, Ukraine isn't Belarus in 2022, right? It doesn't have the same infrastructure linkups with Russia that it did, say, in 1991. A lot of those have been severed, especially after 2014. So what you're seeing is an attempt to move an army that was never really designed to be a a fully-fledged expeditionary army into Ukraine being met with very fierce resistance and a very nationalistic fight against very insurmountable odds, or so it appeared in the beginning. And I think that the honest answer is that The Russians, like Sim was saying, their military is not set up to do things like this. It's not designed to be an expeditionary force. It's not designed to send conventional forces. They've got special forces that are very capable, but their conventional forces are just not on par with the American military. It's because the American military is very good at what it does. 
Uh, we spend a lot of money on it for a reason. And that's why if the United States military were, say, invading Canada, you probably wouldn't see a train with what appeared to be the Scooby-Doo van going by on it, along with a bunch of other civilian vehicles, as we saw in Rob's Twitter feed on multiple occasions. You know, there were delivery trucks and dump trucks and things of that nature early on in the war. And that's not a good sign. That's not a sign of an army that's performing well. And so I think if you if you combine all the factors, you look at what an army is supposed to do and what an army is supposed to be in a war like this, and you compare that with the open source data coming out, be it satellite imagery of where the front lines have stalled, or TikTok and Twitter videos, things of that nature, it's pretty apparent that the Russians have not accomplished what they set out to accomplish. So if I can actually respond to something that you said, Aram, on the, on the logistics preparation before the, the conflict, that reminds me of something that we were looking for at the time. I, I spent a lot of my time working with satellite imagery. So obviously during the whole buildup, during the war scare ahead of February 24th, uh, we were trying to really understand what was happening, what Russia was piecing together. And one of the things that we were looking for based on Soviet doctrine and, and the Russian doctrine that is essentially kind of an evolution of it was the big logistical dumps at the, the front or the, the division levels. So we would have expected to see these big fuel dumps with pipeline operations connecting them to railroads. And we didn't see any of that. I'm, I'm still not seeing any of that. And, and that's one of the big reasons, actually, that prior to the, the conflict breaking out, I was still convinced that this wasn't something Russia was actually prepared to do. And that they, they fooled me, they fooled themselves. But that, that whole lack of logistical preparation seems to be a very, very strong element in, in the failure that we've seen so far. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, that the logistical failure, one is... Part of the reason that we're seeing their their offensive stall out, but also was was a major reason a lot of analysts didn't see this coming because I remember discussions with with several analysts about this very topic about like well there's no logistical tail there's not the amount of infrastructure behind this invasion that you would expect to see from a sustainable invasion and I think that really lends itself to the idea that even those who planned this invasion didn't know it was going to happen. It appears to me that what's happening is essentially if we had a tyrannical American president who told the army drop plans to invade Toronto and the army said, OK, whatever. And then the, that tyrannical president told them to follow through on those orders. That's a totally different thing than a, than a hypothetical situation to actually follow through on those orders to invade your neighbor and a former part of a union that you are a member of is quite different than a theoretical invasion. And so I think what we're seeing is just the reality on the ground that game theory and these strategies, these simulations that we play through all the time don't always take into effect the human factor. And that's really what we're seeing play out here down from an individual level, from the fighters on the, on the fields to Zelensky himself, whom I think many of us thought was going to flee. I personally didn't think he would stay and fight. And I've been very impressed to see him stay and fight. And I think that it's, it's that top-down leadership, but also the bottom-up resistance that's come together to really unify and, and put the Russians in their place. Rob, I'm curious as well if, if you would like to respond to that and also talk a bit about Ukraine's operational capacity and any big surprises that you've had or any types of lessons learned as well, uh, taking into account Russia's performance, but then also, of course, how the Ukrainian resistance is held up as well. One thing to note from the beginning was that this war it only made sense if there wasn't much Ukrainian resistance, right? It only made sense if the Ukrainian military was not very capable and the Ukrainian citizens 
basically said were indifferent or wouldn't resist actively having someone else kind of installed in charge in Kiev. And that, that was a clear strategic intelligence failure on Russia's part. That wasn't that was one of the conditions. Ukraine, since 2014, changed dramatically. Ukrainian military changed dramatically. All these things have changed. And even in the Russian-speaking cities in, in Ukraine that Russia you know, might have thought they would have some support, right? Kharkiv held out. In the south, in Kherson, in Melitopol, and in all the cities, there's been an active protest movement. It's very clear that even if Russia occupied some cities, it wasn't going to be the Crimea 2014 situation, right? There's going to be a long-term resistance, and it was always a question of what was the plan for that. So that was the number one issue. Ukraine's military has been very effective, and, and the things we're seeing is that, and also territorial defense fighters, they're much better at small unit actions and competency, and the Russian military is, is too centralized its decision-making. And so that means Ukraine had, had kind of better initiative in a lot of cases. It meant that Russia was on a small level was, was kind of slow to respond to certain things, you know, tactical changes, TDPs, all those things were problems. You know, the Russian military wasn't set up for success in this war. And I think the big picture is that Ukraine is a large country, it has a large population, there's a lot of large cities. And if, if Ukrainians decided to resist, which it did, there was really no good solution for Russia in this war. And in my view, what made the most sense from Russia, if they're going to invade, was the focus on destroying the Ukrainian military, right? Stay, stay out of cities, focus on attracting the, the Ukrainian military. And then and then if, if you're going to go for one city, go to Kiev, try and circle it. And that's kind of it, right? Make make certain priorities. I think they, they did too many things. They didn't focus on attracting the Ukrainian military enough in the beginning, which made it impossible kind of later on. They didn't do enough in terms of taking out Ukrainian air defense in the beginning, the Toshka U's, other key capabilities, you know, the Air Force. And all of that meant once that stuff survived the first hour or two of the war, it became more and more difficult to take those things out afterwards. So all of those things are kind of significant failures. But, you know, overall, there are a ton of lessons learned for this. A lot of, a lot of vulnerabilities in the Russian military. But ultimately, you know, the Ukrainians have just, you know, they're the main story of this, right? They fought very well. Resistance has been very impressive. None of the major cities, you know, the, the I think Kherson and Melitopol, a couple of cities in the south, Ukraine decided to not defend block by block. But every other city they decided to defend and fight for, they've held, right? Mariupol continue, continues to hold. You know, it will probably fall at some point just because the numbers stacked against them. Kharkiv, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kiev, right, Mykolaiv, all those cities held. And, and that was one of the key failures for Russia is that because those cities held, right, they had to keep forces behind in Chernihiv, in Sumy, in, in Kharkiv, right, to, to kind of partially encircle them. Well, that meant there's a cost, right? They, they couldn't use those units elsewhere. And it meant that their advance elsewhere stalled. And so all those kind of things were issues. Long story short, this is mostly sort of thing about, about Ukraine's success that rather than Russia's failures. I think that even if Russia had done things more competently, if there had been better operational level successes and, and, and you know been more smarter about prioritizing things, ultimately Ukraine was going to defend. And it, as long as you know Ukrainians were going to defend their cities, there wasn't too much that Russia could do in, in terms of a, a long-term political solution because they had to achieve something that Ukrainians would be willing to accept. And that was always going to be difficult. So I think it's mostly about Ukraine's success, even though there are a lot of significant failures the Russian military demonstrated during this war. Thank you. I have another question that I'm very curious what you all think about this. There has been a major loss of Russian industrial capacity with supply shortages, forcing some Russian companies specializing in tank armored vehicle repairs to suspend operations. How do you think this will affect Russian mechanized columns with potentially strengthened Ukrainian anti-armor capabilities? And also, do you think that this could translate into greater Russian casualty counts as Russian tactics may be forced to protect vehicle survivability and adopt infantry forward concepts? 
And I'm curious, other types of tactics that Russian forces are adopting that might change the battle space, especially as they begin to concentrate more on the Donbass. Regarding Oralvagonzavod, I think that was just coming from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. They were saying they were having issues with components and so on. So not not sure whether or not that's true or not. Haven't seen that from the Russian side, although then again, you know, the good Russian defense journalists have mostly been imprisoned in Russia. So we don't hear a lot of those kind of vulnerability issues of the Russian defense industry anymore, uh, unfortunately. So I don't know about the, you know, the truth of that. I think when we talk about the limiting factor of the Russian military, right? So so obviously a lot of tank losses, right? We, we, we count all those things. That's not really the limiting factor for Russia. They have a lot of tanks. Sure, they've lost some of their mo- most modern tanks. That's an issue, but the bigger limiting factor is just is personnel. We knew going into this, Russia has been trying to expand its number of contract soldiers for, for years, right? They've missed those targets every year, basically. You know, there's, I think they're supposed to hit 475,000 contract soldiers by like 2018, right? The last number they gave was like 405,000. Maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't, you know, hard, hard to know. The fact that we know that they've sent conscripts into, into Ukraine indicates that, you know, they have some issues here. So that's, that's not fully true. A lot of the personnel failures they've had, they've compensated by, I think, recruiting more officers to make up for what they couldn't obtain in terms of contract soldiers. So the, the real limiting factor, there have been a bunch of estimates about Russian losses. I don't know what the truth is there. Obviously, the last thing they acknowledged was like 1,500, I think, KIA, I think 3,000 wounded in action. The figure is clearly higher than that, right? But, you know, I, I, I kind of am skeptical to dive into it because whatever figure we give is going to be not very accurate, a little confidence. But clearly, there have been thousands of deaths. There have been probably tens of thousands of wounded in action. And when you look at the Russian invading force, 120 BTGs, that comes out to be 80 to 90,000 troops. And that includes artillery, including electronic warfare. When you talk about maneuver units, right, actual motorized rifle units or tank units, the numbers are, are far smaller. And those units took a lot of casualties, right? And, and in particular, elite Russian units like the VDV have, have been attributed significantly. Spetsnaz units have been attributed. So all the units that Russia would want to use for advances, for other kind of things, things that are useful in, in this kind of war, they've had the worst attrition. And those, that, that kind of attrition, the Russian military can't really compensate for that easily. And the fact that they invaded one with conscripts, Two with Ruskvardia, like Oman, riot police with Sober, like type SWAT, Spetsnaz, other units. They basically pulled everything they could for this invasion in the beginning, which meant they didn't have much in the way of reserves. And so talk about moving units from South Ossetia, but it's still, it's, it's minimal and they can't really do too much. And it's only on the margins. Big limiting factor for the Russian military here is, is personnel count. And they already traded a significant portion of their most elite units, the best manned units. And so they don't really have units that can make up for that. In terms of equipment failures, it's not as big an issue they've lost tanks or IFEs. They can make up for that. It's more indication that, you know, in some of these cases, what units are losing them. So the VDV is, you know, lost four battalions worth of armored vehicles, right? That tells you something about their personnel losses that can't be easily made up for. So I, I think it's more the, the personnel side is the issue, more so than the equipment side of the Russian military looking at this war. So, the yeah, the personnel side losses, that's definitely one of the big issues for Russia to deal with. And and you talked a little bit about the conscripts in the Russian military, and I, I wonder how that is also going to play out in the future. I think it's it's next month in April that they're supposed to have the next conscription draft take place. So I, I wonder whether the, the actual occurrence of the conflict will severely limit the number of people that will actually show up for that. That, that could actually be a really interesting trigger for some domestic protests and, and things like that as well. 
I, I doubt everyone is, is very keen to, to go and serve in the Russian military at this point. But beyond the personnel, uh, I, I also think it's it's worth noting that even though Russia has massive stockpiles of rolling equipment, of, of tanks and IFVs and everything, we do have to ask some questions about the condition that those are in. One of the things that we know about the Russian military prior to this decade, I guess, is that the, the conditions of storage of these vehicles have been very poor. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of these vehicles being stored and, and not even being run once over the course of years. That, that obviously means that uh, certain parts of the engine will degrade, rubber hoses, things like that. And once you do turn them on again, they won't run for very long. Um, so it, it's impossible to guess or, or estimate how big that problem would be. But I think we need to look a little realistically at all of those massive numbers that are being thrown around in terms of equipment reserves. And of course, in, in addition to that, the bigger problem as well is that Russia still doesn't seem to have really fixed the logistical support issue of an offensive of this scale. So even if they were able to to keep pushing personnel to the units that serve on the front lines, if they can keep equipping them, they are still going to have to find a way to actually supply them to allow them to fight in somewhat of a meaningful manner. And, and that's something that I, I don't really see them changing yet. And it makes me wonder, even if we are seeing this readjustment of, of Russian objectives to focus entirely on Donbass and the, the regions in the south that they've conquered, it, it looks like they might be going for some kind of a, an expanded Donbass region that they might claim as a victory. It's already kind of interesting that they claim phase one has been a success in this war so far. That doesn't really set much of an expectation for phase two, but but it looks like phase two could consist of that Donbass liberation, the, the new shape of Donbass that they will declare as some kind of a victory. But they will still have to be able to hold on to that. As they shift forces away from Kiev and Chernihiv, if they have a remaining capacity there that they can actually even shift toward Donbass, that's, that's another question to ask. But when they do that, they will also free up Ukrainian forces that have been fighting on those fronts and that will be able to, to be committed in the east, in the south. And I think Russia is going to have to fight very hard to actually hold on to what they've taken there so far. And I think that to cover ground that I think hasn't quite been addressed here yet, we've talked a lot about the battlefield developments that, and how they've impacted Russia's performance. I think what's really surprised me, one of the biggest shocks to me in this war has been Russia's staggering losses in the information space. Not just general consensus on the internet among anybody who isn't willfully deluding themselves, but all the way to the United Nations General Assembly, which met in emergency session for only the ninth or tenth time in its history to almost universally condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which shows that this is not 2014, where people were confused about what was going on, where people weren't really sure who the good guys were, who the bad guys were, who the aggressor was, right? This is totally different. This is a combination of the American intelligence agencies getting out ahead of this in November and announcing to everybody, hey, this is going to happen. But beyond that, it's the open source community in social media that has corroborated what the intelligence agencies were saying. That one-two punch of independent analysts and the government working together and saying the same thing and then the follow-up of seeing it literally play out play by play like analysts predicted 
has really done a lot to erode Russia's position in terms of the information space. They don't have a leg to stand on. Not a lot of people are buying what they have to sell. And I think that as long as that continues, we're going to see more and more condemnation from the rest of the world. But we're also going to see things in terms of military support for Ukraine with weapons and supplies being sent in. And one of the biggest takeaways from the 1973 Arab-Israeli war was that as long as the Israelis had a seemingly endless supply of armored fighting vehicles coming in from the Americans and a ready and willing group of young people to, to crew those vehicles, it's very difficult to knock them out of the war. And I think we're going to see the same thing with Ukraine. As long as Ukraine has support from the rest of the world and a seemingly endless supply of weapons and a bunch of young people willing to use those weapons, Russia can't win this war. They maybe won't lose it, but they can't win it the way they wanted to. And that's one of my biggest takeaways, at least. Aram, I think that was a really great point that segues into my last question for you all. And it's it's about this information space that is incredibly convoluted and complicated. So the Vietnam War was one of the first conflicts where the general public had a chance to witness a conflict as it happened through news broadcasts. And of course, this capacity was increased through the use of personal camcorders during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now we're in the age of the smartphone where the average soldier and civilian can film and upload what's happening around them. And then of course, the public has the ability to watch this conflict in near totality. Now combine this, of course, with the ensuing information war where data and intelligence can be manipulated and requires further verification. Now you all have been on the forefront of this very complicated landscape and leading an open source information effort in monitoring this crisis. I would love to hear from all of you and in your experience, I'm curious how you see this evolving and what lessons can be learned from OSINT collection in the war in Ukraine. What lessons can also the United States learn as it seeks to position itself as a proactive force multiplier for de-escalation and lasting regional stability? I've seen some people say this is kind of the first social media war, which isn't completely true because we know that Syria has been going on for a decade. It's been heavily covered on, on social media. Nagorno-Karabakh was heavily covered as well. I think in some cases, you know, because it's going on in Ukraine, because it's going on in Europe, you know, there's more interest, right? And I think you know, that's an element. Another element too is that a lot of the fighting is going on in cities where, where you have a higher population density, you can have more people with phones, more likely that, that stuff will get onto the internet. And so that's another kind of the elements of this. I guess one of the obvious things is, is it, it's hard to do a lot of things secretly nowadays, right? And that was true in the buildup. There's a debate during the buildup, you know, how much of this is this about coercion? How is, is this a bluff? Is it a, a, you know, deliberately trying to, you know, show these kind of systems, you know, near the border, so on. And I think the ultimate kind of conclusion was that one was that a lot of soldiers didn't know they were going to war, so they didn't necessarily you know, try to obscure things. But two, at some level, it's impossible to obscure a lot of things. If you're moving around a lot of equipment, you can't do too much. Of, you can't really hide that much of it. You can hide certain things. You can hide timing, maybe. But a lot of the big things, it, it takes time to move. It's slow. You really can't hide it that well. So a lot of that, that's important. I think it's important also just that you know a lot of this has been documented, right? So the type of weapons that have been used, the, the TEPs, a lot of those things, even if you're not in the in the conflict zone, you can interpret things to a greater extent than you ever could before. So you can actually make relatively useful interpretation of what's going on and some lessons just from you know being thousands of miles away that you can't be in the war. So I think I think all that kind of stuff is relevant. Another one is just you know guys shouldn't bring cell phones into the combat. We've seen that before. You, you can, those can be tracked, right? And and I think one of the things we'll, we'll wait to, look, to learn from is that the extent of SIGINT and, and targeting and how much of a role that played. We know that the Russian forces had issues with encrypted, encrypted communications and that they were relying on cell phones and that could be tracked. 
probably a significant role played on both sides of that role. So there's, there's a lot of this to be to be learned about that. One of the other indications is that a lot of the competency of people who are good at open source kind of intelligence, a lot of it came from the, the, the war in 2014, right? Because Putin you know, didn't acknowledge his Russian forces, it became a really significant kind of thing for people to try and track things, to, to figure out things, what was going on, what kind of weapons were being used, so on. So a lot of that was expertise that was developed in 2014. It was developed in Syria, it was developed in Karabakh, and now it's being applied to here. And so you had greater competency of, of kind of non-government source intelligence analysts who can interpret things readily faster in this conflict than they could in previous ones because they had experience doing this. So that, that's another element is just that the, the there's greater non-government expertise in this realm. And also just satellite photos, right? Commercial satellite photos are much more readily available. That tells the story very quickly. You know, we could see the, the airfield in Hersan, right, where the oldest helicopters were lost. We had satellite photos very quickly showing that. That satellite photos showing pontoon bridges being used. All of that comes out with, often within a day or two of an event happening with, you know, very high def kind of quality. That stuff, you know, 10 years ago was only available to, to the, you know, intelligence agencies. So a lot of that stuff is just, it's out there. It can be more readily seen by people. And in a number of ways, it's quite useful because the U.S. intelligence community has an issue with overclassifying a lot of things. And so a lot of lessons that are drawn, it gets put at TS level. And so people can only read this stuff, right, in, in, a, in a skiff or somewhere else. And they can't read this stuff on their own time on the weekend and so on. A lot of information about wars is, is in public domain, right? They're open sources. You can find it. It's on TikTok, it's on elsewhere. And so these lessons can be, can be published and talked about in an unclassed setting. And I, I don't have a clearance, so I can talk about it whatever I want to. But a lot of that, you know, I find out, and one of the big things I think during this, during this war and the buildup was that we would see indications from open sources before we'd see the confirmation from, you know, U.S. government sources, right? So we would see certain tanks deployed or certain weapons deployed in certain areas. We'd see certain indications. And then a day or two later, right, in the briefing at the Pentagon, you'd see U.S. officials say something. And I was like, okay, this confirms what we already saw. We already kind of thought what was going on. Like, as an example, the, the, the forces moving from South Ossetia, we, you know, that was, that, I think it came like two or three days prior, right? So a lot of those things, it's been interesting because you, you, you can see it from open sources before you get that confirmation from government sources. And it's clear as to what extent, you know, this kind of intelligence collection has been democratized outside of just, you know, government organizations. Very great points. I concur. Like the, one of the big evolutions that we've seen that make this so much more impactful right now is the the growth of the community, which, as you said, it, it all started around Syria and the 2014 Ukraine conflict. And I, you know, I remember back then we were tracing patrols of separatist fighters off of YouTube videos and things like that. Now, before I can even open a YouTube video, there's 15 people that have done it on Twitter before me, right? The, the community has just become so vast and so rapid and they've developed tools. They develop, they've developed procedures. They know what kinds of information are available out there. They know how to process them. They know what is useful and under which conditions. And they're constantly improving those as well. The unencrypted signals interception that you talked about, you know, that stuff that's happened in the past. I, I, uh, during the Libya conflict, I think some somewhere around 2014, 2015, people were playing around with intercepting radio communications on, on a very small scale. And now we, we're literally seeing people tracking the uh, the communications between Russian military units, trying to identify those units and their locations and, and trying to get ahead of their actual planning to support the Ukrainian war effort. And, you know, that's it, it creates a, a very new environment for warfare. I think there's also some 
more negative sides to all of this because this also creates a situation where things start to travel a lot faster and some of the analyses that have been made by people within this OSINT sphere have not necessarily been as reliable, but have suddenly burst out into wider communities and, and stuck there. And they are generating some noise on all of the efforts that are going on to actually understand what is happening, how things happened. There's a lot of positive elements to it, but definitely some things to be careful about here too. There's reasons that that governments tend to be a little slower in what they are doing because they have a lot of different checks and balances in place before making their final calls and, and communicating those. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in the future, because this definitely won't be the last conflict where we see this OSINT community play a part. To go off of that, I just wanted to say, I'm 30 years old now, and so my first war that I really remember was the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And I remember there was TV footage, there was live TV, TV footage even, and there were embedded reporters. But it wasn't like what we saw, say, during the Arab Spring, where there were a bunch of people with cell phones recording things and uploading them and sending them to Al Jazeera, who had live streams on the ground. And that looked different than Euromaidan in 2014, when there were a number of cameras on the ground in Ukraine live streaming the events of the protests and the early days of the war. But from a journalistic perspective, it was abruptly camera. So it was from the Russian perspective. So they would find the most antagonistic parts of the crowd or whatever. Now, what we've seen with this war, at least in the beginning, there were so many sources of live streaming data, video, audio streams, things like that that it was actually overwhelming at first. And so as somebody who has four screens on their computer to dedicate to this kind of thing, I was overwhelmed. Like I, four screens was not enough to cover the number of video feeds coming out of Ukraine in the beginning because Ukraine's a very connected country, right? And that's another change that we've seen in this war is that in the past, when Russia invaded Donbass, they very quickly gained the support of the local authorities, that is the internet service providers and things of that nature. This war, has been different. The internet service providers have a vested interest in keeping these internet services online for people to upload videos to get to the, to the wider world. And so while we've seen live stream videos cut from all across Ukraine as the security situation has devolved, some cameras have been cut for security reasons. Some have been literally hit with a giant stick. I saw several videos of Russian soldiers with giant sticks hitting cameras. And so for one reason or another, most of these cameras are down now, but the internet service remains up because there's an interest in the local community and in the local officials to keep the internet and the information flowing. And as long as you have that and then a porous border with several NATO states, it's not Kazakhstan in Central Asia that you can surround and cut the information off from. You will never stifle the information coming out of Ukraine, no matter how hard you try, unless you're willing to seal the border with land forces with NATO. And that even then, that can't stop internet. So what we're seeing is Russia is learning that you can't, can't win an information war with the same playbook around the world today, right? What worked in Kazakhstan isn't necessarily going to work in Ukraine, and what worked in Syria isn't going to work in Ukraine. And that's part of what we're seeing, is that is that uh, information spaces are very different depending on where you are in the world. Well, thank you so much, Aram, Sim, and Rob, very much for, for your insights today. Uh, on behalf of the New Lines Institute, I just want to thank you all very much for the insightful and very in-depth analysis about the evolving security landscape in this prescient inflection point of U.S.-Russia relations. And then, of course, the precarious power vacuum that is emerging in Ukraine. Your work in monitoring this unfolding conflict has been very invaluable, and it has been an honor to talk to you all three today. 
And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this latest episode of the New Lines Contours podcast series. All the best.